power of the preposition. We're in Galatians chapter 5, going to read verses 1 through 6. You can follow along on the screen, or I really trust that you take your word or the word in the Bible in the pew and follow along with us. It is for freedom that Christ has made us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened once again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Just briefly on this passage of Scripture here, at the beginning of the New Testament church, there was this, those folks who were still trying to uh, use Jewish tradition in the Christian New Testament church. And Paul is addressing some of these things here. And in this, they were trying to teach the people they needed to keep the Old Testament law and so Paul is countering that. And, and the circumcision mentioned here is just a, a, one of the items that Paul was using to portray the law, all of the law. And he's saying if you want to say this one point is necessary, then you need to follow all of it. But in following the law, you separate yourself from Christ. And so... Uh, he was trying to encourage them. So today we're talking about freedom and we're talking about liberty. And in doing that, I want to give us a basis, an understanding of why we are where we are. And it goes back to the 1500s. Back in that time, the Catholic Church, of course, was predominant. That was the main church in the world, it wasn't the only one. There was the Eastern Orthodox Church. But in Europe and in those countries, there was that, uh, that element that the Roman Catholic Church was so powerful. And so at the time, Martin Luther is one of the main ones we hear about who stood up against some of the processes of the church. And... He nailed 95 theses on the chapel in Wittenberg. He didn't really, he wasn't trying to start a new religion. He wasn't trying to change, uh, he was trying to change things, but he wasn't trying to depart from the Catholic Church. He was just saying, these are issues that need to be looked at. These were concerns, and one of the main ones that got his focus was the practice of indulgences. Indulgences were something that if you had a family member or even yourself who had committed a sin and some who had already died and uh, were deceased, 
you could purchase an indulgence. You could pay money into the church and you would get a paper, you would get the blessing of the priest over that person. And so it became, like it so often does in humankind, uh, corrupted and abused. And so that's one of the very things that Martin Luther was, was protesting against is this, uh, this adulteration of the faith. And so he, he stapled these theses, and because he was unwilling to recount from them, he was uh, defrocked as a priest and uh, actually imprisoned. But Martin Luther wasn't the only one at the time uh, saying things. In uh, Switzerland, there were several, and, and actually all around Europe, who were starting to see problems with the teachings. There was Zwingli, uh, was a prominent uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. There was Calvin, you perhaps heard John Calvin, uh, and others. And there were more than one religion. One of them was the Anabaptist. The Anabaptist were really given that moniker because it means uh, against baptism. But that needs some explanation. They weren't against baptism. They were against infant baptism. They were teaching that an individual needed to make a personal decision for Jesus Christ in order to undergo baptism and should not be baptized until they had made that choice in their life. And there were other groups. There were Amish groups back then. There were Mennonite groups who... Uh, also were taking the same thought. So around these 1500s, there was a lot of stirring, a lot of thought against some of these teachings, and out of that grew Protestantism. King Henry VIII, and I wonder if you, like me, started to think of the Hermit Hermit song, I'm Henry VIII, I am. Okay, let's forget that. King Henry VIII, in rebellion against the Catholic Church, established the Church of England, which was a Protestant church. But he continued in the tradition of Europe in that he made that the country's religion. Everybody was supposed to worship at the Church of England. And part of this was a struggle between King Henry VIII and the the. Pope and the leaders of the Roman Catholic had nothing to do with faith. It was just kind of a little match between them. But he was very insistent. And if you did not worship, if you went against that, you could be put in prison, tortured, and possibly killed. So this is what was going on. That was 1534 when King Henry VIII created the Church of England. And there was a group of people called separatists who didn't mind that he started a religion different than the Roman Catholic, but they felt like he didn't take it far enough, that he held on to too many of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they pushed for even greater freedom in faith, freedom in religion, and how to worship God, and they were called separatists. They were also part of the Puritan movement, believing in pure religion. Because of the persecution in England, they traveled to Holland, 
where they could worship a little more freely, but the trouble was in Holland, they faced regular discrimination that we have often with different peoples. So while they could worship freely, they didn't get the jobs they needed, they didn't get the, uh, the help they needed, and so that's when they decided to travel to America. They believed that coming to America, being a new country without a king, that they could then truly worship freely. And those people who came to America, the Puritans were called pilgrims. Pilgrim means to travel a long journey. And so they were given that name, and that's where that came from. And they intended to land in Virginia and establish a colony. They ended up in Massachusetts, but there they did establish a colony. Many of you know the story. They faced great sickness, uh, and that is where they had a, they made a pact with the Indians in the area, and they did share a meal. They had a, it was a pact of peace. They would not bear arms against each other. If one of them caught one from the other group in a crime, they would bring them back to their people and let their people uh, administer justice rather than doing it themselves. So it was a, an agreement between them, and they, they had that first Thanksgiving that we talked about. So in that, we see that the pilgrims came to America not to get away from religion, not to live apart from it, but to enjoy the free exercise of their faith as they sought how to worship God. And so it was a seeking of freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. And thus the difference between the prepositions. We have many people in our world today who are wanting freedom from religion. They don't want any uh, religious instruction telling them things they are doing wrong that there is a God that they are accountable to, that there is sin. They want freedom from religion, and so they seek to eradicate it from our culture. And they use the government, in many cases, to do that, to place restrictions. But we have a very powerful amendment as the Bill of Rights amended, and then thus amended to the Constitution of freedom of speech, that the government shall not establish any religion or hinder the practice of any religion. And that's, that is a founding principle of our Constitution. That and along in that is freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and so forth. And so our nation is founded on that. Freedom of religion is liberty. Having the liberty to worship as you see fit. And that causes problems, of course, because in our nation we have people that want to worship in a different way than we do. And uh, yet we embrace their freedom to do that while we, as we have opportunity, will share how we choose to worship God in hopes that God will open their hearts and minds and they will accept as, as many do. But that's, that's the crux of, of how our country was established and, and why. And yet that is based in our scripture and what we read today in Galatians talking about 
the freedom that Jesus Christ brings. Adam and Eve, going back even further in history, perhaps had the most liberty of anybody. God placed them in the garden, and before they had sinned, everything was available to them. There were no restrictions except for one, that you shall not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God withheld that one. We don't know everything about that tree of knowledge of good and evil, except that God did uh, refuse them to eat of it. And certainly in knowing what we know of God, it was for their benefit. He says to them that on the day ye eat of it, ye shall surely die. And so he protects them. He warns them. And liberty is much that way. We can give our children liberty, but within some boundaries. The boundaries are not usually because we want to be mean, because we just want to exercise some power, because we do that because we know of the safety it gives them, the protection by staying within some certain boundaries. And so we do that, but within that, they have complete liberty. Adam and Eve had complete liberty before God, but when they did as humans do, and they were tempted by the devil, and they disobeyed God and ate, then what God said came to pass. And at the moment that they did that disobedience and God found out, in a sense, they lost everything. They were cast out of the garden. They could no longer enjoy paradise. Their fellowship with God was broken. And we see that instantly they became ashamed of, of their lack of dress. And when God came and walk, came to walk with them and talk with them, they hid from him now because of the shame and the sin in their lives. And they were forced to work, to till the ground. And life became hard and difficult because they disobeyed and allowed the sin to come in. Until that time, they had that liberty. Unfortunately, we all know this, that forbidden fruit is the most tempting kind. Tell a child, tell us, you can't have that, and we instantly want it, and we'll strive for it, unfortunately. Adam and Eve succumbed to that temptation. Their disobedience, Paul teaches extensively in the book of Romans, that sin nature that entered was passed down through all mankind. It made us all slaves to our sin nature. Jesus came to free us from those chains of sin. Jesus is having a discourse with the Jews in chapter 8 of John. It's recorded. And he tells them, you are slaves. You are enchained. And they say, wait a minute. We're children of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anybody. And Jesus goes on to tell them, no, you are slaves to your sin nature. And so are we. And the Apostle Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 7. One of the greatest, uh, maybe the greatest uh, uh, Christian of all time. Extensive writings. Tremendous witness and servant of God. But in chapter 7 verse 15, 
Paul writes, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, that nothing good lives within me. As it is, it is no longer I, I skip the line, I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who does it, but the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Can you relate to that? I want to do good. I want to obey God. I want to follow Him. But before I even know it, I'm disobeying Him. I'm following after my own way. Sue and I had the opportunity when we were in college to sing a cantata, a musical called The Apostle, about the life of Paul. And one of the songs went is, that which I would not, that do I do, doing all the things I hate, I'm so untrue. A spirit wars within me and I can't get any rest. Bum, 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 bad memory. I'm such a bunch of mesh, but I thank God that I am His. And He will take me, make me, break me, wash me, mend me, heal me, save me, I am His. And uh, that's just a, a such a good depiction of that battle that we face we love God we know what he's done for us we praise him we want to live for him but I turn around and I go back to my old ways I do those things that he disapproves of that he doesn't want me to do and I commit sin in my life it's that sin nature that sin nature separated us from God and it's been atoned for through the death of Jesus Christ and as we appropriate what he's done for us as we believe in him as we trust in him that sin is covered by the blood of the lamb we are saved from the penalty of sin that's what salvation does to us when we accept Jesus Christ the penalty for the wages of sin is death the penalty no longer has power over us. But we are not saved from the presence of sin or the power of sin. It still impacts upon us. We still have our mind and our soul that wrestles against it, that leads us to do things, to do that which we don't want to do, and to not be able to do what we want to do in reference to God. And so God saves us and helps us uh, 
here on earth from the power of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus departed, he sent the Holy Spirit. And when we accept Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit infills us. And that infilling gives us a strength to tap into, a wisdom to utilize, a knowledge beyond our knowledge. And it, it lays in there sometimes dormant in our lives because we don't tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, even though it's there to lead, guide, and direct us, even though it was sent to us by our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit is there and is available to each and every Christian to help us be rescued from the power of sin. Because of the Holy Spirit in our life, if we will trust in Jesus, follow the Holy Spirit's leading, learn what He's teaching us, we don't have to commit those sins anymore. We are not weak and spineless creatures who cannot resist a temptation. We can stand firm in the power of the Lord. We can say, get thee behind me, Satan. We can be more than conquerors, as Paul said in Romans 8.37. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us so. One day, a day we look forward to, we will be saved from the presence of sin. We are already saved from the penalty as we believed in Jesus Christ. We are being saved from the power of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And on that day He calls us home, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. And we don't know what heaven's going to be like exactly, but if you can imagine being in the presence of God, there's no more sin going on. There's no more darkness. We live in a world of darkness. We don't turn on our TV or our radio because we don't want to hear about the murders and the killings and the abuse of people and those kind of things. Heaven, one thing it will be is no more being in the presence of sin like that. Only goodness and light living in the presence of God and Jesus Christ in heaven. That's what Jesus did for us. The Jewish leaders rebuffed Jesus, but He taught them that you are slaves of sin. He, in fact, He said, you are doing as your Father does. And in that, Jesus is saying, your father is Satan. You're following your father. If you were following my father, Jesus Christ speaking, if you were doing as Abraham did, you would obey me. You would trust in me. Abraham did that. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Jesus uh, is drawing up this, this picture to the Jews and he's saying, you're actually of your father, Satan. No wonder they hated him. No wonder they wanted to kill him. They thought they were their religious elite and here he's telling them, you're actually children of Satan. You're not children of God. And in his teaching, he's saying, believe in me, trust in me and become a child of God. We are created by God but until we accept Jesus Christ 
as his Savior, we are not children of God because children follow their father. And as Christians, we will follow God in what he says to do. We are born into sin. Our soul is dead to God and his ways. We don't seek him out. Our sin bears with it that sentence of eternal death and an internal drive to live counter to God's wisdom, to satisfy self, not good, not right, not God. The way of God is the path of liberty and life, and the wages of sin is death. We are bound in chains more powerful than any government edict, and we cannot break those chains. In ourselves, we are doomed to live according to this same nature and reap its awful consequences. We would be doomed were it not for our Creator's love. God, whose law was and is being violated, provided a means by which we can pass from a sentence of death to life. He came. He took on the form of man. We call that man Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for that sin. And with that payment, He freed us from the chains of sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have that power to break the chains that bind us. He gave us freedom in Jesus Christ. He gave us liberty. But unfortunately, the enemy is still waging war. We still have that sin nature. To defeat self takes an ever-vigilant dependence on God's presence within us. We know that presence to be the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives within each and every one who has trusted in Him. Also, unfortunately, we must battle not only our fleshly desires, we must battle those who would be free from religion. I'm speaking of those who reject any acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. Those who want no restrictions and no words spoken against their sinfulness. Those who do not want restraints on their intimate behavior. By those who champion the rights of the unborn and seek the protection of children. They do not want reprisals against their choice of drug. They do not want repercussions on their wanton acts against others in our society. They think freedom is being allowed to do whatever they wish to do regardless of the self-inflicted damage or the damage on others. As followers of Jesus Christ, it is incumbent upon us to stand for truth and right. If we who are Christians who believe in God do not stand up for what's right, if we do not embrace and stand up for truth, who is going to? Certainly not an unsaved person. We must live the right way and by that life point to true freedom. People are hurting and we have the balm of Gilead, Jesus Christ. As we have embraced liberty in Christ, we must proclaim that liberty in the darkness. Susan and I were at a meeting Tuesday night with the uh, uh, North Central Baptist Network. I have to get association out of my verbiage. It's network now. And the opening comments by John Alton 
he related to a study based on the census from 2010, and he listed it for the counties in the network. He started with Henry County. And he said, according to the study using the census of 2010, it was found that on any given Sunday, 89% of the population of Henry County is not in church. That means one out of, only one out of 10 people are attending church. That means when you drive by 10 homes, nine of those will not attend church on a Sunday. He is certainly burdened, as we should be burdened for that. And it is our responsibility for God to proclaim that news. Early in our service, we practiced communion. We went through the ritual that proclaims to others our faith in Jesus Christ. And through our partaking of the bread and the drink, we expressed our faith and dependence on Jesus Christ. We took a few moments to participate in a public act of faith. That faith means we have left our sinful ways and embraced the way of Christ. That way is a life that honors Him and lips that proclaim Him. We sat to share in communion with God and His fellow believers. We need to stand up for the cross and those same kindred hearts and shine the light of Jesus Christ to our community, our commonwealth, our nation, and our world. We must stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Would you stand now as we prepare to sing our hymn of response, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. Today, will you stand up in your heart? Will you stand up for Jesus? Will you stand for true liberty that frees people? Our nation was founded to give us that right to practice our faith. Thousands, perhaps millions, have fought and die that we might freely worship as we choose. By not proclaiming the word of God, by not living for him, we trample on their fallen bodies by indulging in that sin that we keep hidden. So our challenge today as we face Independence Day, will we embrace that independence from our sin nature empowered by the Word of God through the Holy Spirit? Will we embrace that independence of having to do as the world thinks we should do? Will we embrace that independence that leads us heavenward to unite one day with our Heavenly Father? Let's think on those things as we sing as Sue comes and leads us.